Philippians. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 4 through 11. And uh, we, we jumped into this last week. And so uh, we're going to kind of walk through it a little slower in the next couple of weeks and really understand what's going on with Paul because we want to understand what Paul's motivation here because as you read through the book of Philippians, you can tell that when he gets to this section, it is a little bit like somebody put an extra shot of adrenaline in his uh, frosted uh, flakes that morning because the change tones a little bit. But it's understandable. My friends, Jesus has risen, sin has been defeated, and our identity as image bearers through whom the glory of God gets proclaimed to all the creation has been restored because of the work of Jesus. That anything that diminishes our view of that glorious reality ought to be challenged with emotion and with vehemence because this is our birthright and yet, other religious obstacles and obligations begin to creep in and distract us from that reality. It, it is not simply the sin that challenges our full flourishing in our faith. It is also the things we put confidence in other than Jesus in order to deal with the guilt or the consequences of that sin. That ends up becoming as much as a distraction away from Jesus as preoccupation with maybe some sinful bondage that we're uh, secretly uh, uh, still abound to. And so Paul recognizes this. And so what we realize is what Paul is seeing here is the foresight that he had of how detrimental this early Christian, it would have been to the early Christian movement to introduce that, that, that although there's the revelation, there is nothing you can do to be, be made right with God, you have to come to Christ. But remember, legalism isn't about what people put on people coming into the faith. Legalism is about what they put on people after they come into the faith. And that is the issue here. It is about what the Judaizers, who in sincerity, I, there's no reason to believe that every Judaizer was insincere in their motivations. They may have been authentically expressing the way they understood what they, they understood what faithfulness to God looked like and they wanted other Christians to participate in that faithfulness. However, that is the problem. Once we place upon people expressions of faithfulness that are, that, that are different from, um, that, that are as an attempt for them to conform to our expression of faithfulness, that's when we may in fact not be cooperating with the Holy Spirit, but with the voice of the, accu the accusation of the enemy and creating a bondage of condemnation. And that's what's taking place here. Paul says it doesn't matter how sincere they are, what they are doing, this error has consequences. Bad ideas about God have consequences in the life of the most sincere person of faith, which is why part of what it means to have our mind renewed we're so, it's almost like we are, we've fallen for this bait and switch. We're so preoccupied with sin management that we don't think about deception management that's taking, taking place between our ears. But this is where the battle is waged. And this is where real transformation takes place, not in addressing the petty various behavioral issues primarily, but in tracing back the thinking that is rooted in our brains that is driving our unconscious decision-making. 
Even the Holy Spirit dwells there. Transformation can happen there if we're willing to give ourselves over to a life of self-awareness. But part of that is being exposed to the deceptive ways of thinking, even in our sincere attempt to be faithful to Jesus, sometimes we can shackle ourselves with, with traditions and obligations that are not in keeping with just resting in the work of Christ. Once that happens, we immediately begin to construct an alternative system that we ultimately put our confidence in. And thus we are now following the exact mistake that the Judaizers were making. So although this particular distraction won't look exactly the same as it does in the writings of Paul, what I wanna challenge you to think about is how has our story also mimicked that same error? It will look different, the content will be different, but the temptation to yield our trust to techniques and ideologies over resting in Christ is still very much a present temptation that you and I will face even this afternoon. So it's important that we take the time to understand what was Paul's beef with the Judaizers, why is he so worked up, and what exactly is the solution? What I think will be very clear within the rest of this chapter is that Paul is radically focused on the only, the only solution to the distraction of unnecessary religious obligation is to be radically focused on building your faith on the life and teachings of Jesus executed through the empowering presence of God through the Holy Spirit who mystically dwells in you and causes you on some level that you may not completely understand to actually be one with God yourself so that Paul envisions a faith where you understand yourself as already seated with Christ in heavenly places and that you understand that your identity is not defined by the struggles or the glories of life within this body suit that you've been given to house the real you, which is the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit who's being renewed by the presence of the Holy Spirit even now as we gather together in this room. So we want to pay attention to Paul's struggle here because now what Paul's gonna do is something that might seem very arrogant. He is gonna use his personal testimony to bear witness of the futility of seeking, um, of, 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 of seeking to attempt to express your faithfulness to God by following external laws and rituals. He's gonna say, I've done this and there's something better than religion, essentially is what he communicates. Now, what is very interesting about Paul is the comparison he makes, which we're not gonna have time as much as I am tempted to, to nerd out here this morning. It's really fascinating to look at the way Paul expresses his narrative and look, go back and read how Paul summarizes the narrative of Jesus in the first part of, of Philippians chapter two. And what you can see is he is showing the parallels of how his personal journey is, is in some way reflective of the journey of Jesus. Now, when he models this, he's not just, he's not modeling that now compare your story, not to Jesus, but to mine. He's saying, look at how I find my story in the narrative of Christ. Now you go and do likewise. See, it's not enough for you to be edified by seeing how Paul sees his story in the life of Christ, which is what we're, the content that we're gonna look at this morning. I hope that you see from the very beginning, the ultimate goal here is for us to take Paul as a, Paul as a model and ask ourselves, do you see your story in the life of Jesus. 
That becomes a critical element for your own journey of renewing your mind and renewing your understanding of who you are in your redeemed self because your redemption, it includes your history, your personality, your experiences, your way of viewing the world so that now you become a very unique reflection of the glory of God. It's not that we're not all diamonds, but we're all at a little bit different angles. And so we're all reflecting it in a different way. But unless we can articulate for ourselves how we see our narrative in the narrative of Jesus, it becomes more difficult to do that. So Paul is going to do, he's gonna model that right here. This whole narrative where Jesus uh, leaves privilege and he doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather, brother takes on the form of a servant and he learns obedience through what he suffers even to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, a name, by the way, which every knee will eventually bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord, which means Jesus Christ's love will eventually win over the hearts of people who can't see his glory at this time. That's the goal, that's the promise. That's what we are participating in seeing made manifest within our generation. That's the privilege that we've been given. So when we look at this, let's see what Paul has to say about his story. He is presenting his testimony, not primarily as an autobiography, but as instruction. He's illustrating the difference in serving God in religion and walking with God in relationship. He's saying, look, if you wanna go that route, let me tell you right now, none of you are gonna do it better than me. It's kind of arrogant what he says here. And by the way, those Judaizing teachers, none of them did it better than me. I've gone there. So I have learned from that great Indian sage, Bender Dundat, right? He knows. And, and he's saying, it's not what you think it is. And so he's sharing his experience as a paradigm for the Philippian believers to follow and because of the mysterious supernatural way in which God's word continues to be preserved from one generation to another within the scripture, he is also sharing his experience as a paradigm for the believers at Christ Community Church in 2023 to follow as well. So let's look at this model. So here we are, verse three. I mean, chapter three, uh, we're jumping here in verse four. For we are the circumcision. Last week we talked about, maybe, in, maybe going in too far detail, about the difference between how they understood circumcision. And then what Paul's gonna turn right around and say, and say, by the way, they're not the circumcision anyway, we are. Because ultimately circumcision was never about simply following the external ritual. It is about what it symbolized in the heart. And for us, for us, we have experienced the cutting away of the flesh from the heart, so we are the true circumcision. So he starts with that statement. So he's creating this polarity, you know? I mean, I'm one and I'm with it to say, and I am uncomfortable with too much us-them rhetoric, but when it comes to ideas about God, sometimes it is helpful to say, this body of belief about God is different than the way I understand God. I don't think I'm better, better than them. It's not that kind of us and them, but it is saying, okay, that's an understanding. And if that works for you, great, but you have to understand you have the freedom to explore other ways of being Christian than just one particular narrow denominational culture. And it's okay to explore those things because you might find that there's something out there that is actually more fitting with the way God's put together your temperament and your passions so that you, it will actually equip you to be more successful in removing the obstacles to your faithfulness. 
So he begins with essentially, as in the words of Gordon, uh, the, the, the late Gordon Fee, God rest his soul, he says it this way, it's as if Paul is starting this section by reminding them that there is no future in the past, but rather the future is in the present. And we'll look at how those two things relate to one another. So the first part is Paul essentially saying, look, there is no future in looking back to the past. Now, I'm going to forego the discussions of specificity here because we've talked about them before, but I want to acknowledge that the context that Paul is talking about is this tension of the transition of a people, an ancient people trying to understand that their covenant with God, their agreement with God has now been fulfilled. They're no longer living in the age of looking for its fulfillment. Now they're trying to understand what it looks like in the age after its fulfillment. So their covenant with God was fulfilled and God has made a new covenant with humanity through by making his covenant with Jesus, who's there to take away the sin, not just of a particular people group or even of a particular religion. That's not how the Bible says it. It didn't say the sin of the Jews. It doesn't even say, although we read it this way, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Christians. That is not how the scripture says it. It says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is what he says. That's the Savior we're celebrating. That's the Savior we're serving. That's the, that's the program that we are enlisting to bring manifest in our generation. And so, and so, um, so that is their tension there, but I do believe that within three years, I mean, within a few years of the early Christian movement, the church, I think you can make a case historically, started looking back to the expressions of the old covenant and bringing them into the new covenant expressions, and we've erected a system that for us evangelical Christians serves in a similar manner as the system of obeying the law might have served for the first century Jewish Christians as they're trying to understand this new expression of a much more inclusive understanding of faith. I think that probably our systems create the same conflicts and obstacles in our day and time that we also have to work through. So, so what he says and his approach is very relevant. He says, we're the ones who, we're the circumcision, the ones who worship by the spirit of God boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Now, that's a very interesting thing that we probably don't have too much time to go into, but you need to see it, and I'll mention it again later on. He qualifies what he means by blameless. He's saying, in terms of the law, I was blameless. Now, if you read Paul's theology in his other letters, you can, you, you can read that he does not, in fact, believe that he lived a blameless life. In fact, he actually uh, calls himself, well, it's how we know Paul was Native American. He refers to himself as chief sinner. And so, uh, just kidding. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Man, that landed so flat. Uh, the room is too white this morning, I guess. Um, but uh, uh, my neighbor brothers, I know you're online. Hopefully you're chuckling. And so, uh, what was I talking about? So anyway, um, <laughs> my fervor people aren't here to give me my cues. Uh, what was I talking about? What? 
Oh, blameless. Thank you very much. Blameless. So, so, so what, what, he, what he's actually, he, he doesn't believe he's blameless. He understands that he's sinful. He, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. That's where I got distracted. But he's saying a blameless in regards to the law. Now, what Paul is doing there is saying this. It is possible to conceive of yourself of righteous because you've mastered the cultural expectations of your religious obligations. And so you might perceive yourself as being a blameless person when in reality you are not. So there, religion is not used as a means of conquering my sin, but as deceiving myself and distracting me from the reality of my sin. It, it saves me from the pain of having to actually confront my sin because we have standards that are easier than God's and as long as we're meeting those, then we look righteous among our peers, right? This is, this is the true phenomena that Paul is articulating here. And he lists his spiritual pedigree, if you will. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which means, look, even all you Gentiles who are being enamored by the idea that your faithfulness to God can be expressed by honoring the law, by then returning to circumcision, look at our laws closely. You're supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. There's a reason for that because I'm guessing you adult Gentile men aren't all that enthused about this new revelation, right? But he says, but I actually follow the law. I was actually circumcised on the eighth day. And then he says, in addition to that, I am of the nation of Israel. I'm not trying to participate or get in by following the external standards. No, this is who I am by identity. I was born into the covenant, old covenant people of God. And, and with these two statements, these first two statements speak directly to the issue at hand. The Judaizers urged Gentile Christians to practice circumcision so that they too would experience the privileges of, of being members of God's ancient people. And so he immediately addresses this. I'm in. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which is the first tribe from which uh, uh, Israel's first king was chosen, not by God, but by Israel itself. Saul, Paul's namesake, was actually was of the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin's also special because whenever the first... Um, Whenever the first um, heretical split happened in the nation of Israel, 10 tribes went with Israel, but with Judah, only Benjamin stood with Judah. So Benjamin also was, uh, it, it was one of the last, it was, it was the final tribe that stood with Judah before Judah eventually fell as well. But they were not part of that original deportation of, that, of those other 10 tribes whenever Israel defected from Yahweh. So he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews and regarding the law of Pharisee. Now, Paul is very, he, he is not ashamed to say, and I'm just a Pharisee, I was, I was top dog Pharisee. I mean, I, I really did the thing. In fact, if you look over in Galatians 1.14, here's what he says whenever he's writing his polemical letter against the Judaizers in Galatia. He says, look, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. So Paul emphasizes that he has succeeded in following Hebrew law and he's given his testimony as if he's saying to anyone who wants to strive to build their righteousness around following the law that no one will be as successful at it as he once was. He fully understands and can empathize with what it means to take pride in devotion to his people and to the law of his God because he is an ideal specimen for what that can look like. Regarding zeal, then, he says, I persecuted the church. Regarding righteousness that is in the law, 
I am blameless. Now notice in this context, this word righteous, this is really important. It does not refer to the character of God, nor does it refer to right standing with God, which my experience, if you grew up in evangelical churches, when righteousness is spoken of, it's primarily we've come to understand it as right standing before God. In this context, Paul is not using the word in either of those ways. Paul qualifies what he was talking about. This is what distracted me earlier. He says the righteousness regarding, regarding the law. In other words, he refers to the observable conduct of a Pharisee who was very careful to follow the external expectations of obeying the letter of the law. Everyone say external expectations. Thank you very much, youth group. Sorry, it's just never going to be out of me. This righteousness is not about right standing before God, but right living before men. Now, this is really important. If you get distracted from resting in the work of Christ and in primarily making your life built around faithfulness to Jesus, it will be because some other figure or organization full of humans has made you feel deficient in some way, so you want to follow the practices of the group so that you're part of the group. It's a very powerful human motivation, and you don't have to be religious in order to be, uh, feel the reality of that longing and that desire. So this is very important because most of us think that we get into legalism because we're just trying to please God, but if you listen to someone's story long enough, most of us got distracted into legalism because we wanted to please a man or a group of humans or some kind of system that was represented by them. That's why it's usually in whether or not we are legitimizing our faith before men in the way that we're living. That's usually the invitation for legalism. Not so much we consciously think, now I have to earn God's approval. It gets mixed up with that further on down the road, but in the beginning, that's what it's about. And this is what Paul is saying here. I was very successful at that game. And of course, I've been vulnerable enough with you all to that you hopefully understand, it speaks to me because that's exactly the way I used my evangelical Christianity. I mastered the system so that I could be somebody within some context. But that was just in service of the altar of my ego. That was not learning the way of Jesus who's willing to look at the hard thing that God calls him to do for the sake of others and say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I just wanted to learn the spiritual techniques that would allow God to submit to my prayer of not your will, but mine be done. And darn it, God just wouldn't cooperate. He was very rebellious in my system. But he, his rebellion put my soul back together and saved me. And so this is what he's talking about. Now, the shocking point that Paul is building towards is that righteousness based on following external laws is not the kind of righteousness God ever intended and is worthless compared to being found in Christ. Now, I want to be careful in how I speak here and I don't wanna miscommunicate Paul is not making a blanket condemnation of religious practices. Remember, this is all about where your confidence lies. 
So Paul is not opposed to ethnic marks of identity, nor is he opposed to religious rites and rituals. There's that illustration in Acts where Paul submits to a, a, a cleansing ritual that would have been meaningful to his audience of the Jews in order to speak to them, even though he only practiced that as a connection point within that context or to remove a fence from that context. He is opposed to putting confidence in any of these practices. He explicitly says that he considers faith in those things as dung. If you don't know what that is, look up your synonym app on your phone and find out, or your dictionary app. You all have synonym apps and dictionary apps on your phone, I'm assuming, so now you know why. Uh, then we move into verse seven, he says, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I mean, sometimes, look, Paul is a little confusing. Sometimes he's entertaining. Sometimes he's really theological dense. And sometimes he's a poet and his words just flow like butter off the tongue. This is one of those passages. Loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But everything that was to me gained, I consider lost. Now, look at your notes here, and I want you to see the columns here, because what Paul has done is now he's employing a business metaphor from the world of business and finance, a profit and loss statement sheet. Paul was revealing to you all and to us and to his readers what he considered to be both profit and loss in his experience of his own faith journey. And what he says is everything that was for me gain. It means that one time, and listen, this gain, this is not Paul struggling. I know, I know that how we like to identify this. It's not Paul struggling with materialism. That's not what, that's not what captivated his heart and tempted him away from Christ. It was being successful in his religious system. That was the sin he had to lay down in order to be more faithful to Jesus. So that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the gain of the accolades and the promotion that happens when you master a religious ideological system. He was out there and he did it perfectly well. And you would say that he was at the top of his game, that his experience was 100% gain. So much so that when there were other ideas about his faith presented, he actually went and persecuted and, and endorsed the execution of the practitioners of some of the early Jewish Christians. And so, but what he says now is, those things that were to me gain, now those very things I actually consider a loss in view of knowing Christ. I know it's a little trite. I know it's a little sentimental. I know it's a little bumper sticker. And I try to get away from that as much as I can. But this is where that very simplistic understanding that Paul seems to be saying, there really is a difference between being faithful to a religious system and being in relationship with Christ. Because I've done both and I've gone from one, and now I'm in the other, and he's saying the water is way better over here, my friends. But notice the, the words he uses, and this is very instructive for us because I do believe it speaks to one of the errors that has created a toxic subculture within our particular movement of evangelical Christianity. Because what Paul says here is that, is that this, it, it is only superior because I know Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, I know we've done a lot to try to talk about 
the uh, communal nature of the gospel promises and the communal nature of even religious instruction in the New Testament. There's only one uh, writing there that's written to one individual, but it's been preserved for our uh, wisdom as well. But so there is a communal reality, but the truth is as individuals, this is why we recognize that when you go from his story to their story to our story, you're still not done. There's that place where you have to say, what does this mean for my story? Where does this truth interact in a practical way in my narrative? And, and, and this is where we have to say, we can talk about the glories of the covenant and the community of grace, but unless as an individual you choose to entrust yourself to it, then there's a, there, there is a limitation to the liberty that you're going to experience. Because somehow at some point that has to become moved from the concept of my ancestors and my community to the truth that is mine, that I see that in some way I've earned and I own. Now, I don't mean you earn your salvation, but we've got to earn our wisdom, my friends. Every piece of wisdom will cost you units of pride. And unfortunately, wisdom has a high inflation rate. So if she offers a lesson to you today and charges five units of pride and you say no, and then the pride beats you around a little bit and you realize I kind of need what she's peddling, you go back to the store two weeks later and say, okay, I do. here's my five units of pride. I want to buy that wisdom. And she'll say, sorry, it's 10 units of pride now that it'll cost you to get this wisdom. And that is the reality of the flow of life. And so, um, so here... When, when, what Paul recognizes is, and what I'm saying is, at some point, unless I act upon this wisdom we're talking about, it'll just be rhetoric for me. It won't be a dynamic reality. In the same way, when I look at this beautiful woman on this roll over here, and I, say to, to, and, I, and I distinguish her as my wife. See, it's not that she's the only wife. There are other wives, but it's different for me, for her, because she's not a wife. She's not other wives. She is my wife. So now that establishes, here's the thing. In my flesh, this woman can say things to me that I would not tolerate from anyone else. Now, why is that? I know some, not because I fear for my life, although at some point that was part of my motivation. But in the growth of our relationship, I have moved from honoring her requests from fear to love and devotion. And that was won over because of the consistent faithful love and devotion she brought into my life. You see, my friends, a lot of times what happens in our walk with Jesus gets interrupted and we gets replaced with confusion and frustration because we forget that authority comes through intimacy. Obedience breeds resentment if intimacy is not the foundation. Obedience breeds resentment if intimacy is not the foundation. Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic, but I would submit to you a group, a generation that is now emptying the rows of seats in evangelical churches. It might be because the previous generation taught them obedience, but didn't teach them intimacy. And the result of teaching obedience outside of the context of intimacy is resentment. It doesn't work that way. The new so so it's, it's critically important that I understand Jesus is not the Lord, but I've given myself to his pursuit so that he is my Lord. 
Because my friends, we have to state this fact clearly to our generation of evangelicalism. The New Testament writings do not envision a faith that is detached from acting upon the teachings of Jesus. The New Testament writings do not envision a faith that is detached from acting upon the teachings of Christ. However, I'm afraid that we have in fact created those two categories. You see, if I claim to believe in the person and work of Christ, but I am not surrendering to following his teachings, then I may be a good Christian, but I'm certainly not a follower of Jesus. They're not the same thing. And I'm looking out on this crowd of people and I'm seeing both enthusiastic, but also subtle nods of the head. And the very fact that I can explain those distinctions to a group of people and you know what I'm talking about, that there is the difference between someone following Jesus and someone following a good Christ, being a good Christian, then you know, you can see how far off track that we've come just by the very fact that those two categories exist and you all know exactly what I'm talking about. We've become distracted. God is calling this church, this community, to pull together and to begin to explore what does it look like to just return to a simple faithfulness of Jesus as the measure of our spiritual maturity. That's why God called us into a season where we renewed the mission of the church. We exist to equip people to be true to Christ, kind to all people, and be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. Because we want to center our spirituality directly around the person and work and teachings of Jesus. Because, here's why, it's not a new legalism, my friends. It's born from the conviction that we can never fully understand who we are until we practice the way of Jesus by living his teachings. Until then, it's only gonna be theoretical. You're gonna be talking about a person referring to yourself that you really don't know. You don't know that until you have done more than read and read books and been part of discussion groups where you pontificate your opinions about the teachings of Jesus. Until you face an enemy that you want to retaliate with and this Holy Spirit says, turn the other cheek, then you don't really know who you are. You don't know what you're made of. Because right now in that scenario, I assume I'm gonna punch the guy in the throat. I've gone from the nose to the throat, it's more effective. But what I have hope for because of my history is in that moment, I will be gripped with a supernatural power and love that I can't conceive of hypothetically. I can only experience in the moment that I need it. And I've seen this happen. So we do not understand who we are as our Christian identity until we experience the challenge of actually acting on the teachings of Jesus. That's when you discover the depth of the transformation that the spirit has really wrought in your soul through his movement of grace. And then the last part of eight, he says, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. Now look what Paul does here. He is communicating that what the Judaizers considered gain, he considers dung because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And if you look at the Google, you'll find out that the original word dung he uses here isn't like a sanitized word. He actually uses a word that would have been understood as an expletive in his culture. That's how powerfully strong he feels about this idea. And then he rounds it up with this beautiful, beautiful prose in verses nine through 11. 
I mean, even if you're not religious, you, you can't help but be removed, moved by the pros here. I consider them as dug so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith, which is really uncomfortable because Paul's solution is, if you wanna be righteous, the answer is to believe that you are. That's essentially what he's saying. That's what it means to have faith. It means to believe something that there's counter evidence to. If you want to experience the righteousness of God, take the leap and just believe that you are before your behavior gets aligned to it, that identity. Takes guts to do that, my friends. It's a bold thing to have the audacity to live like you're a forgiven person. That's why most of us don't do it. Verse 10, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. Look at this language, I wanna gain Christ. I wanna be found in him, having a righteousness from God that is based on faith in Christ. Paul's goal was to know him, but then we're gonna end with this. Look at the way he defines that, and it's so instructive. There is no gloomy, depressive cynicism in Paul, but neither is there a toxic positivity, triumphalism in Paul either. He says, you gotta take a hold of both of these realities and pull them together within your chest. Take a deep breath and live them, fool. Just live with these two, the tension of these realities. Because here's what Paul says, to know Christ is to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed of him to the point of death so that you may then participate in his resurrection. No triumphalism or depression because death and resurrection are constantly at work. Suffering and relief, suffering and liberty, these, these rotational realities are constantly present in our human experience. Paul knows the secret. I'm gonna both identify with Christ in the sufferings and identify with Christ in the resurrection power that is evidenced through God's empowering presence in the gift of the Holy Spirit that was poured out after the resurrection of Jesus. That if you go back into the gospels, you see Jesus himself said, that's a better situation. I gotta get out of here because I'm localized here in this body. But when I leave, the spirit's gonna come and the spirit's gonna be poured out on all flesh. Amen. Amen. So how might we respond to this truth? I want to, you to think about as you leave today and as you ponder the rest of the week and maybe take some time to think through and pray this afternoon. What does it mean to be found in him? And I would like you to consider that what it might mean is this, to be found in him is to cultivate the self-awareness that my identity is an extension of being found in Christ who dwells in me as the hope of glory. To be found in Christ is to cultivate the self-awareness that my identity is an extension of being found in Christ who dwells in me as the hope of glory. In other words, what Paul has communicated, my friends, is that my sinful past does not hinder God's present grace. 
But guess what? My religious past does not increase God's present grace either. Living from my unity with Christ is how I experience God's grace moment by moment. And that's where it's at. It's, I know it's a little trite, it's a little cute, but the presence is in the present. That's where it is. That's why pulling the past into the present fills me with guilt and regret and pulling the future into the present fills me with fear and anticipation. That is not where the presence of God is in my life. It is right here at the juncture of this moment. It's all I have to enjoy the presence of God with me. And this right here, this moment, I am sustained by grace. I, I assume I will be in the next moment, but I can't know that for certainty. All that I can know for certainty is that right now in this moment, I stand and I stand because of the power of the grace that fills my soul. Do you see what this means? It means that our future glory is my increasing present reality. That's why longing to get to heaven or to get to the presence of Jesus, I, on some level I understand that, but there's a whole nother level I don't understand it. Why are you waiting? Because you're invited to participate in that reality right now, not just after you die. My future glory is my increasing present reality. And every day I'm only moving closer to that. My future glory of living in unhindered fellowship with, with, with Christ and unlimited love for others and myself is available in the present through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because if Christ is your life, then there are some implications. And with those implications, as we ponder them, with the worship team go ahead and come forward as we prepare to uh, come to the Lord's table. So it means, a little thought experiment, there's gonna be some movement along the sides, and I know they're very talented and good-looking people, but I want you to center in on your notes for just a few minutes here, because I want you to engage with this reality. All that is true of Christ is true of his body. All that is true of Christ is true of me. All that is true of Christ is true of you. Now, do you believe that? And I don't mean cerebrally. I mean from right here emotionally, do you believe that? Let me ask you a couple more questions and see how your heart responds. Is Christ holy? Easy yes. Are you holy? Uh, is Christ one with God? Absolutely. Are you one with God? Uh, you see, to the extent to which we can say yes to the first, but struggle with the second, is the extent to which we're building a faith cerebrally, but not from the heart. And until that revelation can hit your heart and redefine your own understanding of yourself as a restored image bearer who's clothed with the righteousness and holiness of Christ so that all that is true about Jesus is now true about you, even though your thinking and your habits have some time to, that they're gonna have to take to live into that reality. Sometimes it's gonna take about 50 years to get there. But guess what? Every day you're moving closer to that reality and every day you're experiencing the secret of John the Baptist where every little day you can say, today I have decreased just a little 
And in my decrease, he has increased. This is who you are. This is who you made to be. But it's, if you understand yourself as lousy, pretending to be righteous is very different than being righteous and struggling with still some lousy behaviors. Those are two very, very different paradigms because they expose the heart of your own self-concept. Is Christ one with God? Yes. Are you one with God? Yes. Is Christ holy? Yes. Are you holy? Yes. Here's the key. I'm going to give it to you. I know I'm a death coach. I don't give a lot of keys. I will give you the keys that will change your life. Right here, the secret. If I had golden chocolates, I would give them to all of you because this is the golden nugget that you can leave with. I'm summarizing the New Testament faith like this. Trust what God says about you and treat yourself accordingly. Not others, stop that, don't go there yet. Because too many of us wanna treat others that way, but we won't treat ourselves that way. It will never work. You will only ever love your neighbor as you love yourself. So as long as you're still struggling with self-loathing and self-hatred, it's always gonna be mixed in with your loving actions towards your neighbor. Trust what God says about you and treat yourself accordingly. My friends, it takes guts. It makes those brothers and sisters of ours that are still enamored with religious systems extremely uncomfortable. But you know what? Your liberty just might be their salvation too. If you can treat them with kindness and love rather than participating in the rhetoric of the argument. Would you all stand please? My prayer is that you can come forward with this on your heart. And here's what I wanna say. If you recognize that you don't treat yourself according to what God says about you, that is a sin for which you need to repent. I know these aren't the sins we call out. It's supposed to be our gambling and our cursing and that sort of thing. But the real sins lie in the beliefs that support those actions. And maybe this morning, the sin you need to repent of is simply how unkind and disrespectful you think of yourself as an image bearer of God who has been redeemed at a great price. And because of the price he paid, you don't have the right to treat yourself as worthless anymore because you belittle what he did. Believe what God says about you and treat yourself accordingly.